0: Hello, and welcome to Club Soderberg, the incredibly niche podcast about the films of Steven Soderbergh. I'm Carla Donnelly, today's host, and I'm joined by my fellow soda nerds, Jesse Scott. Hello. And Maggie Scott. Hello. Hi. In today's episode, we reach the big time or the mainstream, or is it just some pretty bloody great films without a Cliff Martinez soundtrack? <laughs> Two in a row. It's over a decade into our director's career and we've seen seven very different films pass into the cultural canon. At a point where he was losing his faith, it seems his previous experimental film, Schizopolis, gave our director the boost he required. Out of Sight is another heist film of sorts, a theme that will remain present in Soderbergh's career. With all its macho bravado, it's ultimately a romantic action film with the best meat cute I've ever seen. <laughs> With two Oscar noms, a box office that almost broke even, Soderbergh was climbing his way back. Then came The Limey, an ambitious crime drama about a hard-boiled English criminal played by the luminescent Terrence Stamp, trying to uncover how his daughter died in CDLA. Also starring Peter Fonda and our our, Melissa George, (laughs) although again, not another box office hit, but had solid reviews and was well-respected. Both films had unusual editing styles, particularly The Limey, which had out-of-sequence dialogue juxtaposed over different timelines to add texture or completedness to characters' feelings and story. These two films round out the 90s and count as eight and nine as his feature films, all setting up patterns of storytelling and areas of interest which will explode Soderbergh's filmmaking output in the 2000s. In the next decade to follow, our director will make 13 feature films. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about these films, Meg and Jess. Jesse, take it away with Out of Sight. Well, does this make any sense to you? doesn't have to. It's something that happens. It's like seeing someone for the first time. Like You could be passing on the street and, and you look at each other and for a few seconds there's this kind of a, a recognition. Like you both know something. The next moment, the person is gone, and and it's too late to do anything about it. And you always remember it because it was there, and you let it go. And you think to yourself, "What if I had stopped? What if I had said something? What if? What if?" It may only happen a few times in your life,
1: or once. As we've been kind of building up to. Out of Sight marks the turning point in both our director's career trajectory and artistic path. It's an adaptation of Elmore Leonard's 1996 novel of the same name, and it came at a time when there had just been two successful adaptations of his books, Get Shorty in 1995 and Jackie Brown in 1997. They were both quite successful, so there was kind of a market for these kinds of crime caper slash comedy films at the time. Adding to that... The casting of George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, two burgeoning stars of the 90s, gave out of sight a much higher profile and wider appeal than anything Soderbergh had kind of done to date, marking it in the press as his comeback, kind of living up to his potential film. And this film definitely smacks of what I call giving the people cupcakes. When you're an artist, you have a choice to be led by what you want to do or what the people want you to do. The former can be quite a hard path. Personally satisfying, but also somewhat depressing and isolating when people don't get you. So every now and then you just kind of want to make cupcakes, something that looks good, tastes delicious, is relatively insubstantial, but still requires great skill to produce well. So the plot of this particular cupcake is our hero, Jack Foley, a younger and more gorgeous George Clooney at the height of his powers, is done for a seemingly impromptu bank robbery that goes wrong. Thrown back into prison for the third time and loath to do another stretch, uh, he piggybacks on a less astute criminal's escape plan. Posing as a prison guard, he slips out of Sing Sing and into the waiting arms of his buddy, called, conveniently, Buddy, played by the absolutely wonderful Ving (laughs) Rhames, who basically steals every scene he's in, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Unbeknownst to either of them, Karen Sisko, a tough-as-nails FBI agent, played by Jennifer Lopez, is watching the whole thing unfold from her car and attempts to arrest them. Not wanting her to call attention to their subterfuge, she's dragged, kicking and screaming into their caper. This is the famous hinge of the movie, the highly unlikely, weirdly flirtatious scene where they fall in love in the boot of a car. A tough sell for both the actors and the director, no doubt. Sisko makes her escape, then goes on the chase, trying to track down Jack again. But is it to nab him? Or just to get to know him better (laughs) A lot of the comedy in this film comes from watching their compulsive flirtation Over a series of awkward and unlikely encounters As the cat and mouse hunt unfolds I think it's a really well paced and blocked out kind of action film But that's really just not the point Um, It's not really about the crime By uh, By the end of the film the only thing you're thinking about Is when Jack and Karen are going to get together so my question for you two today is, does Soderbergh just have a particularly perverse sense of humour or do you think he's a true romantic? <laughs> I think it's both. Yeah? <laughs>
0: yeah. I, 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 I felt like, the because apparently Sandra Bullock read for this film as well and he just didn't he likes the chemistry between them, but it just wasn't a good fit this fit for this film. So I think the casting of the two of these actors in this film denotes a true romantic in a way, like just that chemistry and the ability to see the two of them together. Um, yeah, Max. Yeah, uh, I mean,
2: <laughs> I think the scene where they do finally get together kind of grosses me out a little bit. <gasps> but, what?! <laughs> romantic. It's too like... I mean, it's well, it's, it's like charming, sh- but I I think I like the tension that the, uh, what's it called? Erst the un, un, unresolved um, sexual unre- tension. Yeah, un, yeah, oh. I liked that. I was like really living on that.
0: Well, you thought it was and Duke, when they got Duke, together, it was Duke like camp Ugh. up in like a snow chalet. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I thought
1: it was great. <laughs> roaring fires. I thought it was fucking
2: amazing as well. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure how he found her there. I I, I think I might have gone to the he toilet ran, or something.
1: He was reading through the yellow pages and just like ringing, ringing every, every hotel. hotel.
2: Right. Okay, right. I missed that bit. I think I went to the toilet or something.
1: <laughs> what do you think, Jesse? Well, I've seen a few interviews um, where he talks about how, uh, like the other Elmer Leonard adaptations, how they're all quite different and mm. how he kind of, you know, he said, I think he used the phrase he peed, you know, peed on this one. Like you can <laughs> see his, his mark on it. And I think it's interesting because I think he doesn't really – even though, like I said, I think it's a, it functions as a caper film, it functions as a heist film, I think he treats it as a rom-com. I think I, that's that's the heart of the film and I think it's just really interesting that he seems to have this interest in depicting weird but highly romantic um, romances, like, you know, like unlikely couples or unlikely mm. situations but like very sincere romance.
2: A rom-com in the form of a hard-boiled crime action crime movie you know which i mean jackie brown was a big rom uh, not a rom-com but quite a romance (laughs) that was quite romantic too actually yeah Yeah.
1: so there is that in the text itself but i think it could be have treated could have been treated quite differently yeah like i think that um you know i could imagine it could be more sleazy than sexy it Mm. could be more kind of more of a kind of hard-boiled um, crime film than it ended up being. Yeah. Well, that boots. You know,
2: the, them the meat cute in the boot. It could have been quite rapey. <laughs> I know. Exactly. In some ways. I <laughs> like, love it at
1: the end where she says, "You know, and you had your hand on my thigh all that time," and he's like, "But in a nice way." <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it would have been anything without George Clooney. I
0: just don't think anybody could have played that role in that in that era mm. with that kind of rye. Um,
1: non-threatening self-deprecating he's very self-deprecating yeah Yeah, and he does lots of looks to camera you
0: said at the beginning like just so gorgeous oh my god and um i think it was something like this transition period from being like matinee er matinee idol to what he is now which is like serious actor even though he has done quite a lot of screwball stuff with the coen brothers Just that that transition out of matinee idol and he knows his value. He knows what he's worth Mm. and it's it's beautiful. Mm. He's just completely beautiful. He's like staring at the sun and J-Lo, like (laughs) Mm. J-Lo is just extraordinary in this. She's Mm. great.
1: She's such a good actress and it's such a reminder of
0: what a good actress she is. And this is what I come to time and time again with Soderbergh films. Like he just digs these diamonds out of the earth. People who have just been written off Mm -hmm. or – written off for their beauty or for other things that they've done, like J-Lo with her music or something like that, and just really gives them a chance to, to exercise their talents. And I honestly didn't think, you know, shame on me that J-Lo was that talented. And she's absolutely phenomenal in this film. Yeah. yeah,
2: I would agree. She, I, really, I think he directs, Soderbergh directs actors really well. And there's one scene in this that I had watched it um, maybe earlier in the year. And kept remembering the scene, even though it's a completely um, insignificant scene. But it's when Michael Keaton, who plays her dumb boyfriend, comes to visit, and um, they let the phone rings, and J Lo's dad answers the phone. And in the, um, you know at the front of the scene, Michael Keaton and J Lo get together and start talking to themselves. But you can only hear the father's conversation, and it's just this great direction of actors and scene Mm. that just provides this sort of naturalistic feel. Um, And, you know, Michael Keaton, you know, you, you go back to him and he's completely, he's a goofball and he's made fun of um, in that, but apparently, uh, this is just on aside, side, guys. Sorry, but Michael Keaton plays the same character. Yeah, in I think it's Jackie Getsch, Brown. In Jackson Jackie Brown, Jackie Brown. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's a crossover. Yeah, yeah. Was it purposeful? Yeah, it was totally purposeful. Right. And uh, Quentin Tarantino. Uh, asked Miramax to release the rights to the character so that he could appear, because this film was after Jackie Brown. Right. Um, but Miramax owned the rights to the character yep. by proxy of having that second book, I think it was. Yeah.
2: I love I just, Michael Keaton. <laughs> do you, yeah, Michael Keaton's <laughs> great. His face. I just look at his face and laugh. I can <laughs> like, never
0: forgive him for Birdman, so I'll just... <laughs> I'm not, I hated it so much, but <laughs> oh that's another story. That's another story, yeah. Uh, but I also think he just d- directs women really well. Mm. I think, well, first of all, it's providing women with roles that are substantial, mm. but also um, giving them space to work it out or to be what they want to be, or directing them in a way that's not that that is not sort of more standard than I guess they may have wanted to play the character. The biggest thing for me I found in this film was, like, it was the first film with people of colour in it for his entire career, Mm. and I found that really striking. But also with thinking about upcoming traffic and also the period of time that this was in, like, ensemble films and multi-character films were so big then. Like, I just kept thinking about Pulp Fiction, but particularly because of Vig Rames Mm. as well. But Mm. this and The Limey coming up I felt was a – a kind of a rebirth for a few of these actors that had sort of had their previous rebirth with something like, you know, uh, Priscilla for Terrence Stamp or Pop Fiction for uh, Ving Rhames. But Ving Rhames is (laughs) incredible in this movie. Every single actor in this movie is amazing. And every character, no matter how small, has such a great part and all yeah. of the characters went somewhere. All of the subplots went somewhere. Yeah. It really tied itself up nicely in a neat little knot. And it was a great action so movie. So well executed. Yeah. And
2: Louis S- Guzman was in it too. Yes, Louis, yes. He's, he's an interesting um, he's actor. He's in The Limey yeah. as well. He yeah. is, yeah. And
1: some other really great um, kind of cameos. Samuel L. Jackson in the Divvy Van at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just for a moment. But yeah. so so great to have Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle. Well. Yeah, And also... Um, uh, uh, Albert Brooks. Oh yes! yes. It's oh like my God! Yes! Fantastic! Great casting! Like, yeah, yeah. I was
0: reading that was supposed to be Danny DeVito. Right, uh, that would have been good too. Yeah, and also the ending um, was not the original ending. Oh okay, I didn't know that. So they, I think, uh, I think Soderbergh rewrote it himself, or I can't remember who did it. But basically, they rewrote. Oh, he couldn't get to the end of the film. He couldn't figure it out, and so he called. Um, who's the guy at Elmore Leonard, mm-hmm. called him up and said, how do we finish yeah. this film? And he had uh, just seen on the news, you know, this guy who had broken out of prison like for the 20th time and he put that in there. Or maybe that's how he finished the book. Oh, God, I'm getting confused. But um, <laughs> Yeah, they really wanted it to be, They they couldn't decide on, you know action romance and they sort of gave it that romance mm, ending yeah. which is perfect and that comes
2: back to what you were saying before about strong female character who and i feel like j-lo in this movie um kind of completes that sort of cycle that he tried for that character in the underneath what was mm-hmm. her name can't remember but she you know that wasn't quite successful the uh, way that, that you know yeah. like her role played out yeah, you're right it's sort of you know it's almost similar yeah but j-lo in this movie she really you know she gets her cake and eats it too yeah she yeah. gets to shoot him in the leg
1: <laughs> and
2: advance her career yeah. and then she gets to have him you, you assume
1: <laughs> after the film ends <laughs> lucky girl <laughs> that's all I can say to that this movie made me remember like reminded me of how you know beautiful and how in love with George Clooney I actually am oh, really? <laughs> it's like that that like I had forgotten actually I'd sort of like just parked him I was like oh yeah he's you know he's married and he's old and yeah I was like oh my god it was such a revelation like yeah just to die for
0: <laughs> and also like he just he just moved to Italy and sort of you know disappeared hmm. right, and just sort of popped up so he did sort of by mid two thousands, he was kind it's of too busy boating, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and drinking Nespresso <laughs> and wearing like oh, yeah no. loafers with no socks and stuff like that.
0: <laughs> I absolutely loved this movie. Again, like I think both of these movies were too long. Um, I really but thought I, this was too long, a little, just a tiny bit too long. Okay, um, but it's it's minimal considering the – I wouldn't trade it for the character development for all Mm. of the characters. Yeah. But I think, like, the kind of, like, the final apex of the movie with the diamonds in the fish tank and at the house was probably just a little bit too long.
2: Too much, yeah. Yeah. Like the fat guy eating steaks out of the fridge maybe could have been been cut. cut. It was funny, (laughs) but but it was like, you know. Uh, And
0: also it put too much distance on the love element of it to kind of – make it a little bit more neat of a love ending, but it's such a minor criticism.
2: But it was important for her to go there and shoot him in the
1: leg so that she can advance her career. (laughs) (laughs) I I also, what I was really impressed with in this film was that even though there was like some Soderberghian stylistic touches, like the, um, you know, there was those freeze frames that were consistent throughout the film and there was a a little Mm. bit of temporal shifting and playing with that, Um, the way the film loops around um, from the start to the end Mm. kind of thing. Um, But I just was amazed by the kind of lack, the kind of complete absence of an imposed style. Mm. I I think it was like really smooth. The whole film was so smooth and it's almost like timeless. Like there were no real obvious reference to a particular Mm. um, decade or, you know what I mean? Like it's sort of weirdly timeless, even though some of it feels quite a 90s yeah, so I th- I think that's really interesting because I think that's a conscious choice by yeah. him to sort of not impose, you know, really obvious experimental or stylistic touches was on the There were some sort of um, – there
2: were scenes I noticed where the sun is really reflecting, you know, like and there's mm. sort of sun sparks through the –
1: Yeah, there's a few jazzy shots. Yeah, jazzy shots. There's a few jazzy shots. He always
0: makes things look beautiful. But – I completely agree with you. And I wrote that in my notes to talk about how I really feel like this film is the turning point for him. Yeah. Because... His strength as an artist, well, partic- well, as a filmmaker, is telling the story mm. and clearing the, cu- the clutter and making things austere enough to really let a good, meaty story show through and understanding that if you put all of the best elements in place, if you get great casting, great actors, great designers, you need to do very little. And I think this is the film uh, that really showed that to him, like mm. that he, he's not an art house director. He's a storyteller. And creating the space for these stories to unfold and, be, and being a light touch is actually seemingly an incredibly <laughs> difficult thing for a lot of directors to do. And that's what I appreciate about him the most.
1: And just fascinating as well to compare it to the other two um, Elmer Leonard adaptations, Get Shorty and Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown's one of my favourite Quentin Tarantino films, one of my favourite films of all time. But both of those had such very distinct styles from each other and also, you know, like they're so different to a Soderberg approach yeah yeah so um yeah yeah i just find it interesting that he went this way with this particular film
0: I saw it's all clean lines it's from now clean. on, you know, yeah. like it's mm. so clean. We're in safe hands now. Yeah, you yeah.
2: <laughs> As Jesse said last week, now we're into the gooder films Like Steven Soderbergh.
0: But he's always had, you know, he's always had very like minimal camera movement, which is the best ever, but also like very sort of sparse framing. Like there's always just like one, it's the third, third, third thing happening all the time, just sort of like very clean basic setups almost minimalist but um still beautiful design elements and little tricks here and there so yeah which i think really follows through with the limey as well but much to its detriment but we'll talk about that in a minute (laughs) 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 any other out of sight thoughts apart from just uh what about the soundtrack i liked it I didn't really notice it that much. I did. It had a kind. Of,
2: it was a pretty jazzy, not yeah. jazzy, not as in jazz music, but it kind of was very um, upbeat, lively. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know yeah. that, fun. exactly like that. What I just did, <laughs> but
0: yeah, it was fun. Fun. Well, it's actually like, had you, had you guys ever? I'd never seen this movie until about I think five or six years ago, mm. and I did a post about wanting uh, good film soundtracks, mm. like from one of my friends and. Um, My friend said this soundtrack, and I listened to it, and I was like, "Yeah, that's okay, it's good." And he's like, "It's a fucking amazing movie. You should watch it." And that, so I actually came to this film through the soundtrack, which I found really strange. Um, But yeah, I'd only really seen it five years ago. Did you guys see it when it came out? Mm, No. Yeah, Yeah, you did at the cinema. Oh well, George
1: Clooney fan over here. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Give it to me. (laughs) It's actually one of mine and my partner's favourite films. (laughs) Ah. Yeah, no, I I saw it back in the day. Um, I wish I had because I would have had such a
0: different understanding of romantic movies. yeah. Yeah.
1: You're Jenny's father.
0: Why did you come here? i would be nice to have a chat with you, that's all. <laughs> now, why did you come here? Get a few things sorted out. The Limey, written by our old mate Lem Dobbs, stars Terence Stamp in the role of Wilson, a hard assed Cockney career criminal fresh out of the clink and out to avenge his daughter's death in seedy Los Angeles. Wilson works his way through Jenny's friends, eventually landing on Jenny's boyfriend, the wealthy record producer Terry Valentine, as prime suspect, played to a creepy tee by Peter Fonda. Wilson shows he's not a man to be fucked with after slaughtering a gang of criminals tied to Valentine and becomes a man on a mission to get to the bottom of things, or kill Valentine, or both, he doesn't care in which order. Wilson uncovers that Valentine has been laundering for drug dealers, which Jenny found out about and threatened to give, up, give him up or come clean. This is part of a clumsy subplot that surrounds Wilson's chequered past and the trauma it imparted on Jenny. The DEA set up Valentine with Wilson by providing his address for his beach house in Big Sur... An epic shootout occurs at which point all of Valentine's guards and himself is killed by Wilson, not before Wilson shakes down a dying Valentine on the beach for the truth in a poetically cheesy finale. I found this film too long, as I do with most films. I felt at least 20 minutes could have been cut from it. I enjoyed seeing Terence Stamp back in hard-boiled style, something he was probably looking forward to recovering after his turn five years previous in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. There was a lot to like about this film, but it really wasn't my cup of tea. I felt it was trying to be too moody and emotional, but didn't quite get there. It didn't quite turn the hardballed, limey guy on his head. I found the editing of visual flashbacks and flash-forwards coupled with out-of-sync dialogue and sound effects, juxtaposed over the top, a little hard to follow, especially for an action film. I wanted to switch my mind off, but I was unable to. I also found the weaving in of the scenes from the Ken Loach film Poor Cow really distracting and out of place for the film itself. Terrence Stamp starred in Poor Cow as a young man and it was meant to be used in a found footage way, depicting Jenny's childhood and how Wilson loved her mother, but I just found it too strange and out of place to buy it. In terms of the two action films side by side, they're quite wonderful in their freshness. Both have an austerity to them. There's no big explosions here or crazy fistfights, Soderbergh concentrates on telling the story and that's actually where I think is the vital turn in his career. He's a supreme storyteller rather than a filmmaker, although he is a very good one. So my question to you guys is, was this a successful action film for you or was it a really a thriller or a crime thriller or did I get it all wrong and was meant to appreciate it as an art film starring crime?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Perhaps, you know, it may be... I mean, I, I love this film. I actually really love it. But I would agree with you that the – and I've got to answer that question first. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how where it fits in. I think it's an art film in some ways, and it's it was a smaller film. It was, you know, less budget. Um, and I think that the editing is probably one of my favourite things about it, although I would agree with you that the poor cow stuff doesn't really work for me either. Mm. And a lot of film nerds would come and, you know, chastise us for saying that but because I think that's one of the, you know, things that people really love about it. But, it, you know, like the two film styles didn't really work. Yeah. Or the poor cow, you know, I, I didn't quite understand why it was there. But, I mean, I, I, I understood why it was there but it didn't work. Um but the editing I really loved and that was Sarah Flack who edited Schizopolis. Mm-hmm. Um, She's also edited some other well-known films like Marie Antoinette and Lost in Translation and I think she did a really great job. Like I, I loved the way that um, you got sort of conversations from diff- in different locations and sort of spliced up and I just felt that it made it sort of, Showed that this guy, this this limey guy, he the way he's, it's, it was like his cluttered conscience or something. Yeah, that's how I read yeah. it too. That it was yeah. kind
1: of like how you think back on conversations, and you think about them in different ways each time you remember them. Yeah, you kind of focus on different aspects of them or yeah. different moments, and it's all kind of a little bit jumbled. Yeah. I felt that was very evocative. Um, to answer your question, Carla, I think that it actually made me think back to a question you asked last month okay. about um, Soderbergh's preoccupation with, like, terrible men because mm. this film is really about two terrible men.
0: Yeah. And yeah. who both think
1: that they're right or, Yeah. yeah yeah, who have this sort of sense of self-righteousness. And um, I think that possibly where it falls down a bit is that you still kind of sympathise with Terence Stamp's character Mm. and at the end it's sort of meant to be a tragedy. Um, But actually I think, you know, I think the whole guts of the film is essentially that, you know, um, the reason why his daughter was drawn to this horrible other man was because of the the experience that she'd had with him as a child. Yeah. And I think that was kind of maybe a little bit over dramatised or something I think it went a bit easy on him that you were still meant to feel sorry for him when
2: I don't know I mean I don't think it's as that clear cut that the reason why she was attracted to Peter Fonda was because of her dad I think the reason why she reacted to Peter Fonda's criminality was because of her dad so when she found out about um, Peter Fonda's, because there's,
1: I don't think there's similar no, I men. Think, no, I actually would argue yeah. with that. I would argue that point. I would too, yeah. I think that it's very clearly drawn that there's, um, there's even two lines of dialogue um, that I think are directly connected to each other in that uh, Terence Stamp's character at some point is um, described as a friendly ghost. She, you know, Melissa George's character is supposedly referred to her dad as a friendly ghost in her life. Mm-hmm. And then the young girl that Peter Fonda's now seeing right. okay. says, Oh, you're not, not so much a person as, as you know, a vibe. more of a vibe than a yeah. person. Yeah. And I feel like that is kind of like directly connecting these two men as kind of the absent father figures. Yeah. And the fact that he kind of dates younger women and
2: And there's, you know, really no um I mean there's the her best friend that um played by What's her name? Anne. Anyway, she is probably the only other female character but re- and, and um, the young girl that Peter Fonda's dating. But really this is about men. terrible men and women who are the victims of terrible, <laughs> terrible men. Yeah.
1: And the other Which, thing, yeah. oh, sorry, I was going to come back to what you were talking about, whether that worked, the, the tying in, the knitting in of the, the older footage from Ken Loach's film. I went back and had a look at the um, the intro okay. sequence of this film, I couldn't quite remember it, so I went back and rewatched it last night. And it's beautiful like, it's a mm. beautiful, it's only two minutes, but it's stunning. Like a lot of his intro sequences are, it kind of sets up a lot about um, the character. Um, but also, what I noticed was that it, it's quite different from the rest of the film in that it has this real 1960s aesthetic. And you see Terence mm. Stamp, who's like an icon of 60s film. And all the framing, it's very angular, it's very graphic, it's kind of stark contrast, you get a lot of, you know, direct face shots of Terence Stamp. And I feel like in a way that's intended to establish some kind of aesthetic connection sure. to the um, flashback sequences that he utilises that, that footage from the other film. But obviously, you know, doesn't mean that it was successful for you guys, but I was like, oh, that's really interesting because I feel like that's how he's approached knitting it together
2: yeah i mean i think visually it, it worked fine but it was more just in the story like i don't know that we needed to flash back to those
0: yeah i agree and scenes.
2: like they, they were too different
0: and i you know? didn't know that it was you know And I'm like, God, that looks like him. Is it him? And I just found it really distracting. Then I'm like, what what film is it from? And I just found myself being so hypocritical of the footage and trying to understand about the footage. And then once I'm like, oh, well, this is an old film. I'm like, well, why did they do that? And, yeah, I just. I reckon
2: he did it only for that final scene where he sings (laughs) the song about freedom, which was so beautiful. I loved that. I mean, if they just had that, I would have. Gone that to be weird, but I, I love it, also, it.
1: I think it also had something to do with the fact that the film is in dialogue with previous films, with other films, not just that film. Yeah, but I that's think interesting. Think it's also in dialogue with um, Peter Fonda's. Um, Absolutely. What is yeah. that film called that he was in? Bush- Easy Rider, Easy Rider, yeah, yeah absolutely, so, yeah. You know that scene where he's driving down the highway with in with his girlfriend, yeah. in the convertible, yeah. and Steppenwolf's playing. Like that's a direct callback to yeah. that film and yeah. that famous iconic scene. And I wouldn't be
2: surprised if he, if Peter Fonda's character was based on, um, you know, the producer who uh, produced the Beach Boys or, um, the manager. You know, that, yeah, I think he's he's playing like it's definitely yeah. a
1: you know kind of. Um, death of the 60s kind of like how it all went wrong like baby boomer you know who's disavowed all their previous values or maybe never had them Mm -hmm. was just kind of like piggybacking off you know a particular aesthetic and era and then goes on to be kind of basically a capitalist Mm -hmm. you know i found that
0: really interesting because i did feel like this was a film from the 60s or the early 70s that it was not a Hitchcock film, but you know, some kind of like British British thriller that mm-hmm. just it filmed more, it's just felt more European and out of time place. And maybe that's what it was going for. And you know, with the weaving in of, of that footage, but it and that's why I kept asking all those questions about genre. Not that the genre matters, but um. I just couldn't place it. Mm. I couldn't put Mm. my finger on it. And I just felt that there were so many sort of different messages flying at me that I couldn't enjoy it as much as I would have hoped to.
2: I enjoyed it purely for Terence Stamp's performance. He was incredible. He's just
0: magnetic.
1: Like you just feel like if you saw him in real life, you'd just be like, he's beautiful. And, you know, I'm not into older guys, but Terrence Stamp, young Terence Stamp, old, he's yeah, just Yeah, he's a divine-looking man.
2: I think the juxtaposition between his, you know, his sort of sculptured face and his yeah. blue eyes yeah. and then that voice that he, <laughs> he just said, where's Jenny? <laughs> where's Jenny? Tell me about Jenny. <laughs> it's
0: just such a strange. Such a weird
1: disconnect, <laughs> I know.
0: And the other thing I found really strange that kind of dropped – You know, like, he had a lot of the Cockney rhyming slang and he was doing the explanations, obviously, for an American audience and or the, you know, American who he was with at the time. But then the explanations kind of slowly dropped off as well. Like, we were supposed to just, you know, take this up Mm. as... But, you know, I don't know anything about Cockney rhyming slang. Like, I appreciate it. <laughs> the explanation.
1: Yeah, that was kind of one of the things I found awkward, actually. I was sort of like, oh, is this going to be like fish-out-of-water comedy or something done badly? But, I, yeah, I think it was sort of yeah, pulled back a little bit. I, I think that, you know, what you're saying as well, for me, it's sort of like a little bit the purpose of the film, that Show it's on. sort of like this... It's not just these other films that it's harkening back to, but it's actually the history of these particular actors' performances yeah. that are embedded in this role that yeah. they're playing now. It's like it's, yeah, it's sort of a, it is a film nerd thing that he's done, I yeah. think. And that's why film nerds love it because it's so referential. Yeah. And, oh, my God, and so
0: know, many yeah. film nerds love it. <laughs> <They> do. <laughs> do I feel yeah. like such a loser, not liking it or not understanding it as much. As I, I just enjoyed, enjoyed it. it as a
1: film. Yeah. Like, no, it wasn't That's not what made me like it. I enjoyed it as a film and I You know, but yeah. I then reading about it afterwards. Like, oh, that's thought. It It was was funny that um, you know, at the end of the, uh,
2: I think I understand what you mean, Carla, by the tone that you didn't quite get it because it's it is, you know, quite. Um, you know, this revenge film and he kills so many people in this movie and then he gets away with it. Yeah. And at the end you're like, he's just back on the plane again. He just gets on the plane and has it, you know, see you later. Yeah. (laughs) But he's kind of cleared out a bunch of pretty awful people. So you don't feel too bad about it. It's like, they're all pretty awful, like waste of human
1: life. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But what about him? Like, you know, you, He's just kind of, awful. you just kind of get the feeling like, yeah, okay, whatever it was, it was his daughter, but you just kind of feel like, oh, if the milkman didn't turn up for
1: a few days in a row, he'd
0: well, go after him. Fascinatingly. You know I mean?
1: That's a really good point, Carla, because I think that one of the things that disturbed me about this film was the, was its total absence of women mm. and... That poor old Melissa George basically just handed in her headshot. Yeah. And um, that was her performance. Yeah. <laughs> even though she's like a really strong presence in the film as a character, she's physically absent. Like she's yeah. not actually even in flashbacks, it's just the photograph. And there's just this great line where um, her friend you know, when he's sort of like charging off to go and find Peter Fonda says to, um, Terence Stamp, what is it with you guys and your dicks? Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's, again, it's like that character in, um, the underneath mm-hmm. who sort the of reads her friend, yeah. yeah, the best friend that a woman is kind of like given the, you know, cut through line of like, actually, you know, you're following this hero who's avenging the death of his daughter, but actually, he's you know, it's just macho bullshit. Like, yeah. and, um, yeah. So I thought that was interesting, but yeah, I also thought um, that it, it did unsettle me that she just wasn't in it at all. I quite liked Adara, or whatever her name
2: was, who's, mm. who's na- who was named after a constellation and is the daughter of friends of his. Oh, yeah, that sounds was so of. gross. She, she was, a you know, I mean, a gross character, in, and it was quite interesting. In Jackie Brown, Jane Fonda, no, what, Bridget Fonda plays uh, the young Robert woman. De Niro's little toy girl. And in this movie, this girl is Peter Fonda's little <laughs> toy girl. Just making that obscure kind of reference, but you know she is she's a good
1: actress. She was a good you know? actress, she was, and she was convincing. Yeah,
2: she was really convincing. She was very naive and, but without being stupid. Yeah, um,
1: I do appreciate that. That even if he's casting like a small female role that any other director would just like write off as a bimbo, he still yeah. gives them something. Yeah. yeah.
0: Any Lem Dobbs goss from our resident Lem Dobbs?
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> over this film. No,
2: there was a, actually there was a, um, a George Clooney. Um, oh yeah, you know, did you not notice that he was on like today, on or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. And I'm sure he did that for this movie. What? Like, I'm pretty sure he would have done that clip. For, you know, that would would have been a manufactured clip. Like oh, it wouldn't I didn't have been taken. I reckon. Yeah, because he does this like look to
1: camera. Like
0: yeah. George, yeah. <laughs>
1: Do you know um, something that I thought was um, interesting in this film, you, even though like he kind of disavows the underneath somewhat as like the director does, um, I feel like there is some influence in these both these films of the kind of visuals from that film. Because I feel like there is all these colour washes that happen in... Um, Driving around the canyon. Yeah, just yeah. in certain rooms, like in the, in the you know, the, the lovemaking sequence in um, <laughs> <laughs> Out of Sight. There's a use of colour that mm. I don't think was in the previous... Films they had more naturalistic colour, I feel, and then from the underneath on, he's playing with that a little bit more. Yeah. Like in both these films, it's much more subtle and a bit more naturalistic, but mm. it's kind of there, like, there, like using yeah, those yellows agree. and blues and greens and stuff. Yeah, yeah, so I found and that more subtle than the underneath. It wasn't, it wasn't for nothing, no, <laughs> the poor old underneath. I do have some lem gob, lem gob,
2: <laughs> lim- gobs. Gobs. Sounds,
1: <laughs> that's gross, sounds some
2: fatal, some gobby goss. <laughs> Dobby Goss, um, he, in the uh, commentary, apparently, I haven't listened to it, but I have heard that he has a go at Soderbergh for not putting um some stuff in this in the film that but that was in the script oh. and um I was just thinking what you were saying before, like he really Soderberg really does make he. It, he doesn't, he takes away everything that doesn't need to be there. Yeah, And I think he's an editor at heart. Yeah, he is. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, you know, for, for the benefit of the film, like I think in the limey, you know, it's quite a lean, mean film. It stays on, on the limey. It stays on his character throughout Mm. the film and doesn't, you know, it doesn't go into backstory and stuff. Um, I really like Lewis Guzman in this film. Yeah. I think he was, because like, I think he gets quite stereotyped. He's yeah. really
0: underrated. He's
2: very under, And he was, yeah, he was beautiful in this film. He was excellent. Yeah. Well,
0: this film really reminded me of Sexy Beast. Yes. And they came out around the same time, I think. I can't, remember. yeah. Sexy Beast is a bit later. A bit later, yeah. maybe early 2000s. But yeah, I think Sexy Beast is my my Your version pick. of this film. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, let's press pause. Press pause. Press pause. All right. Um, tidbits. These two films are quite juicy. Do you have any tidbits?
2: I uh, do. I. This is <laughs> kind of weird, but the editor of Out of Sight and Coats is a really well-known editor who did Lawrence of Arabia. She's had a long career. Lawrence mm. of Arabia.
0: Wow. Um, she got nominated for an Oscar for that film. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. Beckett, um, just a couple of other films that I can't remember off the top of my head. I just looked at her Wikipedia page before we came here today and she also – she'd be in her 90s now. Oh, my God. And she edited Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, my God,
0: the poor well, thing.
1: Isn't it – I find it fascinating that <gasps> so many top editors are women. They are, that's That yeah. so many direct – you know, Maybe like that's that, a job they're allowed to have. Yeah, I don't, yeah, it's weird. Like Martin Scorsese's longtime collaborator is a female editor. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And these two films both
0: had editors, female editors. Yes. Yeah. I'd be interested to know his, I haven't really looked into it, his cast and crew, because I get the feeling that he'd probably try to have more women than is what is standard. Yeah.
1: Any other goths? I have none about these two films.
0: I've got heaps, so strap yourself in. <laughs> And this is something that I want to watch because it sounds terribly amazing and amazingly terrible, which is there was a Karen Cisco spin-off TV show in 2003. Wow. So I find that really strange. Like, it only lasted one season, but it was like, what is that, F-
1: four y- five years after the film? <laughs> That's really weird. With a J-Lo?
0: No, with a different actress. So that's something for you soda nerds out there to track down. definitely. The biggest fucking bombshell about Out of Sight is, and this is where I think that this is truly the nadir of his career, is he was working on getting signed on to direct Human Nature, the first Charlie Kaufman (gasps) script, when this opportunity came up. And basically, the the person at Universal, I can't remember his name, uh, Casey Silver, turned around and just said, "You know, you don't get opportunities like this handed to you. Take it." And so, could you imagine the like that is really like a sliding doors film moment because yeah. that was Michelle Gondry's first film that yeah. he directed. Mm-hmm. So, I th- could you imagine either of those careers if they if that had kind of gone down, where Soderbergh had gone if he had directed this incredibly obscure, bizarre Mm. scriptwriters film. It would have just buried him into arthouse obscurity. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can see how he really did take so much of a chance on Out of Sight to make that, which is like a a popcorn flick, essentially. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Apparently uh, Soderbergh is credited as being the first person to mention Kaufman in um in text like in public. Oh. So he I think he talked about Kaufman. He he read a couple of Kaufman scripts and he really loved him.
0: Yeah, I could see him having a massive boner for him. Yeah, for boner, <laughs> yeah. for Kauf, boner for <laughs>
2: Kaufman. And uh, he I think he talks about him in that Richard Lester book that he wrote.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think he's had a few sliding door moments. Like um yeah. I think last month we were talking about how he lost out to Robert Redford for quiz show. Mm. But they're all kind of, you know, he he kind of goes in all these different directions
0: anyway. In the future. But then I think, like, these two films really enabled him to do that. I mm. think Out of Sight yeah. really gave him that gravitas to move towards Ocean's Eleven. And then once he had Ocean's Eleven, he could just do whatever the fuck he wanted for yeah. the rest of his career. Yeah.
2: And you it know. sort of does speak to what you were talking about last week with that that man's network, that film mm. that, um, you know, yeah. It's a man's network, the film industry.
0: <laughs> well, do you want to say it's a man's world? It's a man's Maggie? world. <laughs> that's, I think that's actually it. Oh, I also love that um, Old Mate Lem uh, wrote uh, Dark City in oh. between Kafka and uh, The Limey. Really. So I'm trying to weave, like, more Strayer
1: connections in here as well. So, I yeah. feel like Lem Dogs Alex is, Porius. like, some kind of um Zelig-type character that, like, he, you know, uh has probably written, like, all of my favourite films and I had no idea or something. <laughs> like. Just like Soderbergh has directed all your favourite films yeah. but you don't even know who he is. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had one thing that's not really related to these films, but I... <laughs> oh, we love anecdotes. JB hi is having a... Th- buy two, get one free DVD special, TV special at the moment. I picked up season one and two of... The Nick. Oh, my God. So I'm very excited to see that because it was directed by Soderbergh, stars Clive Owen, sit in a 19th century hospital in New York. Sounds gross. I can't wait. It's so Does it have up-close shots of um, surgery and stuff? Yes, it
0: does. (laughs) The Nick. It's extremely graphic. Well, what do you think 19th century surgery was like? (laughs) Horrendous, horrendous.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I'm really looking forward to it because I'm a bit of a – History nerd. I love any kind of like recreation of um, oh, yeah. the past. And I well, think maybe we should do like a television stream.
0: Yeah, after this. yeah, yeah maybe. Be good. Because that was the first thing he did in retirement, quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's the nick? <laughs> uh, okay, I don't have anything else, you no. guys. No.
2: no, I think that's it.
0: And thus ends episode four of Club Soderbergh. Next month, we'll be talking about Aaron Brokovich and traffic. And it's mostly where people drop back into our director's career. Soderbergh was nominated for Best Director Oscar for both films in the same year, winning for Traffic. So suffice to say, our man has made it in a pretty spectacular way. We will also be having our first special guest on the show, so tune in for that. If you haven't caught up on our earlier episodes, there's still time to get up to scratch on the chronological filmography of Steven Soderbergh. That is a very difficult. Sentence <laughs> <to say. laughs> you can subscribe to us on Beyond Pod, tune in iTunes, and wherever you get great podcasts. Thanks, as always, to Zef Anastasio, our sound engineer extraordinaire and gracious host. We'd love to hear from you. Hear about your impressions of Soderbergh films or your favourite bits of trivia. You can contact the team at our Facebook page at Club Soderbergh. Twitter, the same, at Club Soderbergh. We'd really love to be engaged with other Soderbergh fans, so please don't be shy. See you in a month for more Club Soderbergh on the Rocks.